Cardinal Pell, would you please stand? All things considered, I impose the following sentences upon you. On charge one, being the Indecent Act against R, I convict and sentence you to two years and six months imprisonment. On charge two, being the sexual... Hello, this is Media Files. I'm Andrew Dodd. Judge Peter Kidd's sentencing last week of George Pell to six years prison was public and transparent, unlike almost every aspect of the trial that preceded it. Today on Media Files, we're focusing on the suppression order that prevented the media covering the Pell trial and how Victoria in general applies suppression orders and the effect that this has on both the public's right to know and the conduct of the courts. And we're drawing from a forum convened by Melbourne University's Centre for Advancing Journalism, which brought together four very qualified experts in the topic. Associate Professor Jason Bosland is the co-director of the Centre for Media and Communications Law at the Melbourne University Law School. Melissa Davey is the Melbourne Bureau Chief for Guardian Australia. Lucy Morris-Marr, who's a reporter and has worked for several publications, including Melbourne's Herald Sun, Marie Claire and the Daily Mail in the UK. Both Melissa Davey and Lucy Morris-Marr have sat through every day of the Pell proceedings. And finally, Justice Frank Vincent, a former judge of the Victorian Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal, and who was chair of the Adult Parole Board. This forum is chaired by Dr Dennis Muller of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Advancing Journalism, who asked the panel about their reactions to the Pell sentence. Here's The Guardian's Melissa Davey. I think one of the interesting things for me is that um, I have sat in the court every day looking at the way that the Chief Judge Peter Kidd works. And in the aftermath of the suppression order lifting, a lot of commentary has been out there about the case um, and whether or not it was fair, whether or not the complainant's evidence was strong. And what was validating for me was that here is everyone able to see the workings of the chief judge for themselves. They can see for themselves how considered he is, how meticulous he is. And one of the things he did was go through step by step every reason for his sentencing. It was transparent, it was open, and I think that is a great service in the public interest. Um, so that's what really struck me. That was my reaction to it. Um, the sentence itself, um, you know, I am no sentencing expert. I wouldn't claim to be. But um, from what my sources were telling me, they were estimating between anything from two to five years, non-parole of two years. Um, not many of my sources in the legal or police system would say that the sentence today was lenient. Thanks, Melissa. Now, Lisa, you were there too. What was your impression? Uh, well, just going on a different subject from that, really, it was a sense of history and what a moment in Australia, what a moment for the world to see this cardinal, the Vatican's treasurer, in the dock without his clerical collar. That's the first thing that struck me. And he has not been seen in public without that for 50 years since he was ordained in Rome in December 1966. Uh, and so to see him there quite dishevelled, he'd lost a lot of weight in the last two weeks. Um, obviously, prison is not 
not uh, serving him well, uh, and then uh, and then to see him stand in the dock while he's being sentenced, what a moment! And for us, who we've co- covered this for nearly two years, and there's been many twists and turns. We didn't know there'd even be a trial. We didn't know the suppression order was going to lift two weeks ago, and then to see this today was extraordinary. Just in terms of the experience that we've been through and what we're sharing with readers, and and it's really nice now to be able to tweet and talk about it because we were suppressed ourselves. Um, so it, it was amazing that it's all coming out and, and now he's in prison and rightly so. Uh, so it was amazing. Frank, you've got a fair bit more experience than the rest of the room put together on these things. What was your impression? Well, uh, I thought that the chief judge uh, made uh, an extraordinary effort to explain all of the principles upon which the sentence was, sentences were being imposed. He carefully went through the evidence. He addressed each of the arguments, as I understand it, that were advanced in mitigation of penalty. And he dealt with the complex balance that uh, always arises in cases of this kind. Judges don't have the ability to determine for themselves just what they think is appropriate. Uh, Many years ago, I had an occasion where I said to, um, to a barrister, you can either have my best attempt at justice according to law, or you can try for justice according to me. Now that may not necessarily be good for anyone. And that's the point. He, he made a really serious effort to explain to the community how it came about that the sentence that uh, he ultimately imposed was constructed and what principles he, he took into account. It's relatively simple to be critical of, of sentences. What the court would have to consider if the sentence was appealed was whether or not it fell within the range of those that might be considered to be reasonably available to a judge in the circumstances. So it's, it's not a fixed number, uh, and there is uh, all, always a difference of view between judges and uh, those involved in the case and their different uh, perspectives uh, as to the appropriate sentence. But I, I thought all, all up, um, the, the court looked pretty good in the way in which Judge Kidd dealt with it. Thank you, Frank. As uh, Melissa was just saying, One of the remarkable features of this was that it was broadcast live on radio and television. It was in sharp contrast to the secrecy which surrounded the trial itself. And that led me to think, what was it about the Pell trial that's made suppression orders uh, in uh, such a huge issue in Victoria? Jason? (laughs) Um, I I don't think it's the Pell trial itself which has made suppression orders a big issue in Victoria. Um, suppression orders are an issue in Victoria, um, irrespective of the Powell trial. Uh, But of course it's brought public attention to it, to the the use of suppression orders um, uh, in Victoria. Uh, So I think uh, in terms of highlighting that problem, if you like, um, that's the significance really, I think, of of this trial. Yeah. Uh, Frank, you did a report in 2017 into the workings of the Open Courts Act of 2013, which as I understand it, was designed to encourage open justice and to discourage justice in secret. 
And in that report, uh, you said that this Open Courts Act of 2013 uh, had not led to a significant drop in suppression orders. So what's going on? Well, uh, first, my work um, essentially arose from the work that Jason had already done. He had been for some time uh, examining the incidence of suppression orders in Victoria and the obvious increased frequency with which they were, were made when compared with other jurisdictions. There was the Act passed, the Open Courts Act, that was designed to try and reduce the, the number of orders, but it didn't work. And there were a number of reasons why that, that was the case. There has been a culture in Victoria uh, of uh, the making of orders for a wide variety of, of reasons. And without uh, anything like adequate examination of the necessity for them, nor emphasis upon the fact that they must always be regarded as exceptional to the concept of open justice. And that was lost. Why was that lost, Frank? Lost for a number of reasons. One of them, uh, of course, was the toxic relationship that in fact developed between the media and the courts. There was no, no doubt uh, that the courts were very sensitive to the criticisms which were being made of the work that was being done. And um, on occasion, to the unfairness of the representations which were made of that, that work. And I think that led to uh, an unnecessary making of, of, of orders. Doesn't matter whether you're a, a judge or in any other occupation. You don't really like being criticised very much. Uh, and still less do you like being criticised if you think it's unfair. Uh, uh, but there always had been a wider use of suppression orders in this state uh, than in others. It was part of the culture. May I just jump in yeah, there to say do. that, you know, there is undoubtedly a need for a conversation about the overuse of suppression orders. Um, that goes without saying, especially given some of those statistics. There's also a really useful conversation to be had about how effective can suppression orders be in this era of social media. But it doesn't stand to reason that that means the suppression order was not beneficial and the right thing to do in this particular case. And there has been a lot of argument about this. Lucy and I have spoken about this a lot. Um, but the suppression order in this case was not unprecedented. It was not special treatment. Hundreds of these suppression orders are issued every year in Victoria. And the key fact is, in this case, is that Pell was to face another trial. How would, think about the coverage over the past couple of weeks and just how much you've seen of Pell. Would it be possible to empanel an unbiased jury in the face of all of that coverage? My answer to that question is quite possibly yes, because I have seen trials where the prejudice against the individual was absolutely enormous, and yet the jury acquitted the accused. Can you remember yeah. what the case was, Frank? Yes, Wall Street. Wall Street was a case in which the Crown contention was that a group 
of armed robber criminals had formed a pact that if one of their number was killed by the police, two police would die in return. That was the Crown case. It involved establishing evidence of the pact. It involved establishing that these people were violent armed robbers. Now, that trial was conducted with all of the jury, everybody knowing that, and they were acquitted. And another thing is that if we in fact carry that argument too far, we find that there are certain people who can never be tried. When Peter Dupas was presented for trial on the last of the murders, it was known to the whole community that he was a serial killer. That didn't stop the trial proceeding, nor did it give him any effective appeal. The second trial of Peter Dupas involved evidence of a quite horrific character with relation to his mutilation of the body of the victim in the first trial. That also was part of that case. There are many situations in which this kind of argument is raised. The reason that I've come in so forcibly against it is that it works on the assumption that you cannot trust people to act impartially as jurors if they possess that kind of information. And, and I just don't accept that. And I don't accept that after 50 years of working with juries. I would say that uh, what maybe is slightly different about this case now is that the social media access and uh, everything that means you're getting it on your phone, those jurors might see it on Twitter, it's everywhere. It's not just on the front of the Herald Sun and the Age, they're surrounded by it. Now a, a really good example of this is that during the, the trials we walked outside, no one knew what was going on inside and, 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 and it was a real um, epiphany for me in a way because I'm a, a gung-ho journalist like Melissa we like sharing stories, we like breaking exclusives, we like telling people that's the nature and DNA of a journalist. And, and at the beginning of the Pell trial, I was very much, oh, this is annoying, I want to share it. But actually, as I went through, I realised how fragile that courtroom was. It was fragile like an eggshell. There was 12 people practically pulled off the streets to be in the jury box, and there you had the Vatican's treasurer. And, and even if someone's mobile went, it was disturbing. It was a tense situation at all times. And, and it really showed, I just want to say, at the beginning of, uh, uh, as that order was lifted two weeks ago, um, the public were getting these news alerts on their phone outside and as George Pell left the courtroom, there was ugly scenes, there was people making threats, they were pushing towards him. Uh, that was just in the first five minutes uh, and then instantly everyone knew the atmosphere at the court changed. There is nothing, nothing new about any of that. Any trial which is conducted in the country normally would involve a substantial number of jury members and members of the public discussing the case um, and knowing a great deal about the antecedents of everybody involved in it. 
all over we the world in that. real time? Yes. They would know that. They would know that before they came to the court. Why does it matter whether it's all over the world, though? Because what you're concerned with is the jury in the second trial being exposed to material. Now, whether or not that material is derived from an overseas publication or a local publication, the effect is essentially the same. So I think it has to be remembered that the concern here was about the prejudice that might affect potentially the fairness of the second trial. And I think Frank's right that um, when we're looking at the law around staying a criminal proceeding on the basis of prejudicial media publicity, the bar is set extremely high. When we're looking at suppression orders, the bar appears to be substantially lower. Now, you can't say, well, in one context, the person will be able to receive a fair trial, okay, um, the stay context, but in the other context, no, no, we have to grant the suppression order because they won't be able to receive a fair trial. Either they can or they can't. Now, if, as we find ourselves in, the situation where courts are making orders in order to um, protect the jury, you know, as a sort of, uh, I suppose, a convenience almost to ensure that uh, the fair trial can be obtained, then that's not necessity. The test is necessity. Is it necessary or is it not necessary? You know, you can't have a different application of that question in the two different contexts. Defence and prosecution, I think it's important to say, a couple of points to add context. Both defence and prosecution wanted this suppression order. It was by no means something that only Pell and his lawyers wanted. And that's why the court should be more vigilant about making sure the necessity And that's one of the defects of the way in which our system has operated in Victoria. Because if the Crown and the defence came along and asked for suppression orders, then they were almost always granted without any significant analysis by the court of the open justice principle. Can I and they a... could often have their own quite distinct reasons for wanting those orders made. And they weren't always reasons that ought to be acceptable to the public. No, we'll come back to that in a sec. I wanted to ask uh, Lucy and Melissa, you work as journalists. So I wonder whether in your experience, the public debate around these sorts of things is more febrile than it used to be. It's extraordinary. When I started my career, I was at the Daily Mail in London, and you'd, you'd publish your story, and maybe three days later, you get a postcard from an angry reader, um, or a letter or something, uh, and then later an email. But now that instant feedback, it's, it's both good. It can be heartbreaking sometimes if they don't like it, but it's incredible, because actually you, they give you stories, they give you ideas, you're getting the tone, you're seeing how many hits your story's getting. Uh, it's, an, it's amazing, it's very fast moving. Um, but we're, it's a, um, actually a really exciting time. Like, there's so much um, worry about where the media is going and traditional and legacy media, but also it's thrilling, you know, to have the input of, of readers as well. Um, but there's, there's a lot going on, but it's exciting. I wanted to also pick up on a point that Frank made and ask both of you about this. Frank mentioned that one of the factors at work in Victoria was a toxic relationship between the bench and the press. And I wondered whether you had seen any evidence of this in your own experiences. In this particular case? Well, either in this case or in other cases. 
Well, Melissa and I were, were both present at some hearings just before December when the, the guilty verdict had been handed down and international outlets were reporting the guilty verdict and it was trending number two on Twitter. And yet we were reporting, had reported this case for two trials over 10 weeks and we couldn't report it ourselves. And there were some, a couple of explosive hearings with Judge Kidd um, and there was a media lawyer there begging him to lift the order, saying it was in the public interest. And he was saying, no, what's the priority? And that was very interesting because it was like, okay, yes, we'd love to share this, but what's the priority? And, and as we, as Melissa said earlier, we really respected him because he really listened. He, he took on their arguments, but it, it was about this fair justice. And that, I think for both of us, that was a real journey to understand that. That was the other point I wanted to make earlier before I was cut off, is that the media are able to challenge suppression orders. They aren't issued and then um, you have no recourse. Not one media organisation sent a lawyer to contest that suppression order in Victoria. Now, it's a bit rich to get up and say suppression orders are terrible, um, what a blight, when you don't even send a media lawyer to contest it. Did anybody contest it? No, no one contested it in Victoria. And, and the media that I spoke to actually said, if there's going to be a case where a suppression order should be granted, this is the one. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I find it remarkable that the media then, on the day of the verdict, were jumping up and down saying, we've been censored. Um, I mean, they had been censored, but uh, they had every opportunity to go along and challenge the making of that order. The, the other thing about um, that extraordinary case with Kidd, where he was, for the first time, really furious. And, you know, this is a measured judge. He's very calm and um, articulate most of the time, but um, he was furious and there was a real moment um, and I think we were talking about this when he was angry where the journalists who had been in the room the whole entire time for weeks on end felt like we had been tarred with the same brush. None of us had spoken out about the verdict. We were the only ones with the information and we had to watch as some very senior journalists who knew nothing about the case were weighing in, saying that you know this suppression order was overkill, or um, you know weighing in on, on complete misinformation about the case. That was hard because until that point there had been, I think, an incredibly respectful relationship between not just Kid and the court and the journalists, but also defence and the journalists, prosecution and the journalists. It was a very um, respectful yeah. relationship. It was very hard because there was uh, outlets such as the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, many other Catholic um, websites who were editorialising, saying it's not fair, um, this is outrageous, and yet none of them had actually sent a reporter to the court and invested in it until the story got juicy. Uh, and that was it, was, it was frustrating because then I felt like there were vultures just stealing the story, messing with the judicial system, possibly collapsing a second trial and we were in the middle of it and it was just horrible it felt like all these vultures you know and messing with what you know potentially could happen mm. and, and so that that phase just before Christmas was awful for all of us it was a really Very stressful difficult. time and yeah. I think we um, as reporters in the room really only got through because of each other um, the relationship between those journalists who were there was very very respectful and something that um, I kind of feel like no one else understands what that was like how many of you were there in that sort of cohort? About eight. About we were eight. there every day for 10 weeks. Okay. Yeah, it was probably yeah. even a little bit less um, for those who were there in the committal mistrial and retrial. That was probably a group of what, four or five of us, yeah. On the same uh, topic, the Director of Public Prosecutions is reported to have written letters to about 100 journalists and editors asking them to show cause why they shouldn't be 
proceeded against for contempt arising out of the way in which the original verdict was hinted at, although not reported. And I wondered um, what the reaction of the panel is to the sending out of those letters. Obviously, if you have orders, you can reasonably anticipate that they'll be complied with. If you um, have a system under which once the order is, is made and ignored, there is no sanction, no consequence, well, what's the point? Uh, and the DPP um, obviously has acted on that basis. What do you think? Uh, laws were broken. I mean, contempt of court and breaching a suppression order is a serious crime and it can get you five years in jail. So they're just following, uh, you know, fair enough. Uh, and to be honest, I, I think that's quite right. Jason, what's your I think it was overkill um, in some respects. So uh, my understanding is that uh, letters were sent out to people who were, for, you know, for example, answering the phones, doing, you know, sort of um, those types of tasks that weren't actually directly involved in any breach of any order. So there were four potential charges that people had to explain why they shouldn't be charged with those offences. Um, one was subjudice contempt uh, and the other was scandalising the court. Now I can't see for the life of me how um, it could be a scandalising contempt. Um, someone Would you like to explain to our audience the, the concept of the scandalising sure, of the sure. court? Scandalising contempt is basically where you publish something which uh, brings the authority of the court into disrepute. Um, so you might, for example, publish scurrilous abuse about a judge, or you might um, publish that a judge has engaged in sort of inappropriate conduct, for example. Now, that would be your classic examples of scandalising the court. I can't see how um, any of the, well, from what I read, any of the publications did that. Well, the Chief Judge did address that, actually. I'll, I'll let you finish, right. but he did address that okay. argument. Um, the other um, is, um, of course, the breach of the orders. Now, I have no doubt that those orders were breached by some media, both local and international. But that's primarily a subjudice contempt problem, isn't it? No, that's breaching an order. So that is engaging in conduct which undermines the uh, efficacy of eff efficacy of an order that's made Sorry, by... Sorry, Melissa, please. Yeah, so I, I'd be interested to hear, actually, the scandalising point. Yeah, well, you know, it might not quite fit, but the judge did say that he believed that some of the reporting was there to put undue pressure on him and to make comment about him and his suppression orders and their relevance. And, um, you know, he added the fact that even that the media didn't bother to protest mm -hmm. in a court the suppression order, and yet here they were breaching it and then having the nerve to turn up to court and say, do you think maybe you could, you know, lift the suppression order now? That, 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 I think that might be um, so a subjudice contempt. I don't. I still fail to see how it's a scandalising contempt. But um, but anyway. Uh, so I think my point is really that I think there was overkill both in terms of the number of people that were sent the letters uh, and also the fact that they each had to answer to these four charges. I understand it though that the letters were sent to that many journalists because they were mm. actually trying to work out who was in charge mm. when, who was on holiday. Mm. It was actually in a way difficult mm. to know who was in charge making the decisions. Mm. So I think that's why they did send out. It was actually a way to narrow it down. Yeah. It was actually purposely done that way. Now Justin Quill, magnificently named media lawyer, has shot back a letter to the DPP in pretty strong terms saying that uh, this is not about upholding the law, this is about trying to intimidate the media. What's your reaction to that? 
Well, let's see what Judge Kidd said. I don't think he's going to go favourably on those comments um, because he was very strong about it. And like you said, we had a, a personal situation in there, as in our, our work was being effectively sort of stolen and gone viral. And, and, and actually, there was one incident with where my work was actually stolen by a colleague and they used it in another platform, which I won't go into too much detail about. But that caused me trouble. Uh, and uh, it was very, what, very trouble difficult. trouble with the court? Well, it could have potentially, yeah. And I had to actually report the colleague to the court. One of the proposals has been put forward is that Victoria should adopt judge-only criminal trials. We don't have them in Victoria, they have them somewhere else. What's the view of the panel on that question? Well, I'm glad that I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I will burst in on this. The, the, the notion that judges are somehow immune from public pressure or that somehow or other we are a wonderfully impartial, uh, totally unbiased group of individuals. Well, it's a bit difficult for me to accept. Uh, I um, certainly would not like to have been tried by some of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure some of them may not have been too enthusiastic about the reverse. <laughs> And I think one really has to be careful about that. Judges endeavour to be uh, impartial and so forth. But the notion that a single individual, however well-trained, is necessarily going to be a better fact-finder than 12 ordinary members of the community from a broad range of backgrounds and experience is not one that I find easy to accept. Now, both our reporters are nodding their heads at that. Is that would that be a view that you shared? Yeah, I'd agree with that. What I saw, and we did the first trial and the retrial, and then I've done other cases in my career. Juries, when you pick for a jury, anyone here has been on a jury, they take it so seriously. We're watching them. They're taking notes. Um, this jury who made the guilty verdict on Pell, they were out for three and a half days in a room together. That's a long time. And they went over the transcripts. They asked for the videos. Um, they, they were, and they were told how serious it was, and you could tell they were taking it seriously and I, I see all juries doing that when I watch them uh, and I think it's a terrific system and in fact you know, I really do uh, what better way an absolute random mix uh, no one can interfere it's done by ballot it's not corrupt uh, it, it's very good and we're lucky to have it I think I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that I, I agree with Lucy and I think it's good that we don't kind of put judges on a pedestal as somehow being better than um, people in the community thank you very much Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, asked an awful lot of our panellists. Um, so I'm going to ask you now to please thank them uh, for a tremendous presentation. Dr Dennis Muller there of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Advancing Journalism. Panellists were Associate Professor Jason Bosland of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Media and Communications Law. Melissa Davey, the Melbourne Bureau Chief for Guardian Australia, journalist Lucy Morris-Marr and Justice Frank Vincent. This has been The Media Files, which you can find on The Conversation or your favourite podcast platform. Thanks to Lucy Smy and Claire Richardson, production by Andy Hazel. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time. <laughs>